Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is Anita Luz's 1925 novel about getting one over on a bunch of rich guys. So that's very good. (laughs) So I picked this, of course, I love this book for a lot of reasons. It is genuinely funny and I laughed out loud reading it. Even though I've read it, this is my third time. Um, There's this moment where she and her friend Dorothy meet this woman who's been dancing nude. And Dorothy says, I wonder how a person of 18 could get such dirty knees. (laughs) And (laughs) that was a joke I wasn't quite expecting. And just with the other, the general kind of tone otherwise, and also the 1920s, but shows what I know. I mean, yeah, this is this book is fucking great. Like she does, she gets in these amazing bits that are just extraordinary. I also like we all know that I like a book that is making fun of rich men and their dumb money. That's dope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like what like we were saying like Luz is doing just one bit after another, like just a mountain of bits. She talks about how the character thinks the person to handle the Bolsheviks is D.W. Griffiths, um, <laughs> because he's deal- good at dealing with a movie mob in intolerance. Of course, there's this big red scare in 1919. Yeah, he's also good at making extremely racist early film epics, right? Oh, yes. And yeah. she's well aware of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She has this moment that is, to me, really funny and strange, where this guy named Ginsburg is trying to be less Jewish, so he changes his name to Mount Gins, which is a portmanteau of Ginsburg and <laughs> the Mountbatten's. <laughs> right, well, because the Mountbatten's also to be like, no, we're we're not German. Why would you say that? Even though our name's Battenberg. So yes. yeah, so, right, exactly. <laughs> who, who have their own portmanteau, and also they are the absolute fucking psychos uh-huh. that include Admiral of the Fleet. Louis Mountbatten, who used to be, who was the Viceroy of India, which we all know is a cool thing to be. Last one, that's right. And the also last one. Assassinated by the IRA in the 1970s. Not mad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, also, of course, the current Prince Philip, the famous Nazi sympathizer and still living husband of the Queen of England. And Anita Luce, this is a very good joke. I approve. And this book is just wall-to-wall jokes, and I can't wait. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I had a lot of fun with it. And I really didn't know much about it before Megan suggested it. Like, I had seen the famous 1953 Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell musical film version, which I actually just rewatched. And um, I do think the film is really interesting, although I have to say very adapted to a sort of mainstream 1950s aesthetic and sensibility. Like there's a lot of stuff that's edited out and just. uh, Oh, yeah. I don't think it's one sex joke after another. No, although I will say like later in that film, like there's this moment where uh, the guy who is loosely based off uh, Gus Eisman shows up and she's trying to get him to basically uh, help her out. And she's like, well, she needs $15,000. And she's like, okay. This will be about 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> so it's okay, actually, yeah, that's true. It's a little bit more risque than, but but that's kind of like an outlier that movie wears in the novel. That joke would be totally just like part of the the tapestry. But yeah, no, I'm really glad to have read it now. Um, as an 18th centuryist, I I love a good picaresque. It's a, this is amazing, an amazing version of that, a 20th century version of that. So it sort of presents itself as this kind of lighthearted social satire. It is not. As Megan said, it is a fantastic screed about gender roles and money and capitalism and just what astounding dumb fucks Americans are, and particularly rich American men, uh, which is awesome. D- huge uh, dumb fucks. Yeah, and the, the, the dumbest of the fucks. Um, but, and it was a lot of fun to read an account of Paris in the 1920s that wasn't just Hemingway and Fitzgerald being sad and drunk. Uh, which is most of what uh. instead it's a needle loose being uh, mad hilarious and drunk uh and you know more importantly it's just as scathing but significantly less reactionary than, than hemingway and like yeah there's some pretty you know there's definitely some pretty strong critique here that i think radicals could very much get behind and also last thing as a delmarva guy with maryland roots i was interested to see how prominent hl mencken the sage of baltimore as fans of the wire will remember uh is to the story of how this novel got published you know and mencken yeah he was a he was an interesting guy with a lot of um very bad views on race and jewish people and black people and lots of other nazi-ish kind of opinions mm-hmm. um, but, but hey the baltimore sun though am i right Low-grade Nazism, the Baltimore Sun. My motivations for wanting to read this book were were very simple. I, I simply I simply long to know what gentlemen prefer. And it's right in the title here. So that was great. It was convenient. That was really nice for me. I had tried to find out what gentlemen prefer by watching the movie, but too much singing, so I couldn't quite <laughs> get through it. Um, I feel you on that but, one, yeah. <laughs> so it was a, it was a fuck fuckload of singing right just right out the gate a lot of tunes and and i don't mind a musical but this was mostly a musical like there (laughs) was the musical front loading the musical um so i'm glad the book exists it was it is as you two have both uh, both given an account of it. it is hilarious i also have developed a number of personal theories about it one of which is that Tristan in some way time traveled to influence the writing of this book because of how many times boats and ships and yachts are mentioned. <laughs> it very, and yeah. I, I should have said that I was also very pleased at how c- central a boat is to the plot. That's true. Book. It's a big ship, <laughs> ship novel. Yes, a, a huge ship novel. And, and there are so many judgments that are contingent upon uh, boats floating upon the sea. She judges New York versus Paris by the fact that you can get closer to New York on the boat than you can get to the city of Paris. Uh, she also points out that a woman never looks as good as she does when she's on a on a boat, unless, of course, if she's on a yacht, she looks even better still. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just uh, had a great time. I felt like I got to do all the fun parts of observing awful people in various locations without any of the usual travel and socialization that that entails. So I really appreciated that. (laughs) That's true. Indeed. So today we are going to be talking about the sort of big, big points of this, which are class, class and gender, sex, sexuality, and money. And then we're also going to talk about 
Jewishness alterity and sort of like uh, classed positions based on ethnicity. Okay, so I'm going to give the summary of this, which is a real slapdash madcap romp. <laughs> we meet our heroine, Lorelai Lee, on a date with her gentleman friend, Mr. Eisman. If you refer to someone as a gentleman, think of it as someone she's fucking, who is trying to convince her that she would make a great authoress. Um, he is the button king of Chicago, of course. I think I know his place. Isn't it by the Merchandise Mart or maybe on Wabash Avenue, right? Yes. <laughs> button Man. She Do you know the Button Man? Of course. <laughs> she does not call him by his first name. She calls him Daddy because, of course, she does. Mm-hmm. They're out for dinner and he gives her this diamond bracelet. This is the diamonds or girl's best friend. Like that's in the movie. That's the that's where that comes from. And they discuss how the Bolsheviks are taking over Hollywood. And then there's that line where she says, DW Griffiths is the guy to handle them, which I love. (laughs) And because this sort of thing is basically how the plot operates in the book, I am going to sort of like in the sections just list the men she hangs out with. So Iceman, who is like rich and okay, but also no Rudolph Valentino, her words. Gerald Lampson, who she calls Jerry, is an English writer and thinks a woman should be a, quote, doll who brings her husband his slippers. Cute. And then, okay, so Jerry wants to marry Lorelai. And because she's great, she tells Gus Eisman, who sends her and her bestie Dorothy to London and Paris to get them educated. Well, I will say, too, this is something we were talking about uh, before we started. Well, like, uh, how sympathetic we take the relative, like, gentleman dipshits as being, I think one I think one reason why we're kind of primed to like Eisman more is not that he doesn't have, like, a lot of, like, uh, like grossly misogynist opinions, but he doesn't, like, it's not as, like, overbearing imposition of the domestic as some of the others are, like, Landsman, or what Lanson. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? So I, I get I, th- I think that's another reason why, how he's sort of like telegraphed is kind of maybe a good guy or at least someone that we're not supposed to like outright just find, you know, contemptible, maybe. But I mean, I think he's like, you know, another guy that she takes for a ride. But I think he has a great sense of humor about it. it the, yeah, the, I think that. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. In a contest between any man and the button king. The button king always has the advantage. <laughs> oh, yeah. That it's always – you're always going to feel most for the button king. <laughs> There's no button emperor. He's the king of all the buttons. Yeah. No. no you, uh, every morning, I I put on a cardigan nearly every day, <laughs> and I thank the button king silently in my heart each time. Well, Do you think – what happened when the zipper king came to town? Is it just like a colonization <laughs> effort? I don't call the Zipper King back. I'm I'm strictly a button king. And, gal. and you you know you lose a button, you pop a button, or whatever. I I feel like I feel like Gus Eisman has samples on him. You know he can he can help you out. I think you're right. I think he just carries a little uh, a little trove. <laughs> I think he does. Maybe maybe you know what though. He, I'm he's great. He certainly is a trove of buttons. But maybe maybe the Zipper King is worth is worth giving a try to. So maybe for the sequel, we'll meet the Zipper King. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel, but gentlemen, Mary Brunette's a real book. Yes, it has. It has the Zipper King. Does, does, yeah, yeah. <laughs> does it include a Zipper King by any chance? No, but let's say it does. <laughs> oh, fuck. Okay. Well, we're not talking about Thank it you. now, so we can pretend. Right? Yeah, that's right. We could just say no. Go read it, and if you don't believe us, which you should. Uh, okay, toot toot. 
Lorelai and Dorothy are on the high seas. But they're not being sailors, they're being yachted. So here are the men she meets on the boat. She meets Mr. Ginsburg, who I mentioned before, Mount Gins, Major Falcon, who is a distinguished Englishman who likes to spend money, and Mr. Bartlett, who, and this is super fucking wild that we got this plot recall here, is was the DA in Lorelai's murder case. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that little thing. In which Where? she shot her boyfriend and is acquitted by the evidence no. of she is cute. No, no, no. See, she was hold she was holding the revolver and her boyfriend became shot is what happened. I mean, yes. She says yes. this explicitly. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it couldn't be clearer. <laughs> then it's great that she is acquitted and gives the ju- judge a little kiss on her way out. <laughs> also, yes, those are really things that are in this book. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when they get to London, they meet up with Major Falcon, who introduces them to a bunch of truly moronic aristocrats. She says, like, she's she's getting a feel for, like, titles, and she says, like, ladies seem to be the opposite of lords, and that quite a few are not ladies or honorable. Charming. <laughs> Sick burn. Yeah. And so they meet this guy, Sir Francis Beekman, who's, as in Beekman's world, whose major character trait is rich um, and who they call Piggy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Also, sorry, just to interject, interesting revision in the film. Uh, Beekman is in it, but he tells them that his that he goes by Piggy, which I just thought. Oh, they don't oh, want the no. lady. They don't want the ladies to do that cruel of a nickname. Which that was one of those. Oh, like this. This is some nineteen fifties ass, like mainstream Hollywood shit, right here. You know. Yeah, that they wouldn't yeah. do that. In this case, the movie is the music, the musicale is more realistic because the only time you'd ever call a human being piggy is if they informed you specifically <laughs> that that was their nickname that they preferred to go by. <laughs> that sounds like the sort of thing that, like, people when you're in elementary school call you that. And so you just decide to go with it and that'll make you feel better. But they, they sort of get wind that, like, piggy isn't going to shop. Or take them shopping, which is like because the English they're they're not really into shopping, and like they'll maybe get you a bracelet, but that's it. And obviously that's stupid. So we're gonna have to teach Piggy how to buy shit. And so like there's all these Aristo connections that they meet. So there's a scene where both she and Dorothy dance with the Prince of Wales, and because this is this book, that's definitely referring to the actual person and not the base of the prince of wales right yeah 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 oh no i i did i did not take that as i, I mean i took that that is absolutely that it's supposed to be the historical real life prince of wales for sure so yes. is that the dipshit nazi who became george the fifth uh well the dipshit nazi was edward the eighth Oh, George! Yeah, oh, George the fifth yes. is her is Elizabeth's dad. Yeah, no, George the sixth is Elizabeth's dad. I think George the, in the I, I'm pretty sure George the fifth is the monarch. His eldest son is Edward, who would become Nazi sympathizing Edward the eighth, and had to advocate because of all of you know while the Wallace Stevens thing. Yeah, uh, his younger brother, the Duke of York, is is George the sixth, Elizabeth's dad. Um, I see. So, so yes, the Prince of Wales, I'm pretty sure, is the Nazi guy. In this book. Well, he seems like a real treat. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, no, he seems to be a brainless ding dong, like every man in this novel, including like the terribly literate right. There's like three writers. She loves to make fun of writers. It's amazing. <laughs> but after all of this Sturmundrang, Lorelai eventually convinces Piggy to buy her a diamond tiara. Uh, even though his wife is coming to visit, and this is going to be a plot thing later. A lot of wife surprises in this one. A lot of surprise. A lot of wife, wife surprises. I think that that's like, I don't know if this novel invented every single comedy convention after 1925, but it sure puts a lot <laughs> of them out there. The funny brunette best friend. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that, I don't think it's born in this novel, but I think that like a lot. I think that that trope is picked up. Yeah, for sure. I, no, it, it definitely is. Um, and yeah, and I, I do like, I mean, one of the compelling things about this, right, is how it does sort of like uh, really kind of invert uh, or just change the kind of like gendered social space, right? Like, so, uh, you know, because so much of like the, well, you know, certainly the 19th century novel, but even in the early 20th century too, the novel takes place in the domestic and the man is the one that kind of goes out of that space or like mm. comes back in. Whereas in this, it's like, no, it's like, it's the men plus these unmarried women that are like having <laughs> this great time socially. And then it's the, it's the wife that comes in from elsewhere. Like the domestic is this thing oh, that is not yeah. on the page, you know, it's, which is just, it's really, it, it just really kind of inverts um, a lot of kind of like novelistic, like, you know, longstanding novelistic sort of traditions about how space is, or like what or like what space is the subject of the novel well and i think a lot now that you say this it made me think of like so edith wharton loved this book and i was like i get it why she would but i also think about the house of mirth and how like tragic her her need to have like a certain kind of social standing is in that novel like it it's it's amazing but it is really a tragic plot whereas you read this and you're like well you could just fuck your way there no, right and 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 it does care about social standing for sure but it's not the kind of social standing that you're supposed to care about or that suppo yeah. is supposed to be accessible it's to like a particularly not for from a woman who's not from the kind of like upper class for sure i mean if you can get away with murder yeah yeah right or you can get away with a gun her her boyfriend being magically shot. Yeah. Okay, so Lorelai and Dorothy have landed their giant pile of rocks. They set out for Paris. They go to Momart, which is Momart, <laughs> and they see the Eiffel Tower, which is Eiffel as in flashed eye full of skin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's dope. Uh, uh sorry. No, no, I was just going to say those uh, those spelling errors, right? Like they have two functions. I mean, they're, you know, they're 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 funny. They they serve as class markers for sure, but they also like because like, like look, the whole thing with Lorelai is like she's very very smart, but she also like deploys like oh you think you think I'm just kind of like a dumb girl kind of stuff to her advantage constantly. And so like I did wonder as I like with all with uh, just kind of her diction in the writing, how much of that was directed at the reader in the same way it's like within the book directed at the 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 men that, that she you know essentially cons and whatnot. Well, um, there's always this tension between like which men thinks she's smart and to mm -hmm. which degree she needs to like walk this tightrope yes, of like yes. letting them think she's smart and also like not 
Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And so I've been thinking that she would be a good writer is like, that's a tightrope, right? Like she can write in this diary, but with all these spelling errors and stuff, like she's definitely trying to strike a balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I do have a point of, may I raise a point of factual question to your honor? Don't know if we Um, can answer it. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously the, the writer of the book is smart and savvy and hilarious. Are we supposed to take her to be like, I didn't take the the point about I thought it was like brains as in like gives great brain, but not not really. But like, you know what I'm saying? I thought that was supposed to be a total joke and that these men don't really think that she is a genius and they're just telling her shit to get in her pants. Or is it just ambiguous? Or am I just wrong? So is the question like, are am I confusing like that the book is smart and that the narrator that's a question mark. Yes, that's what I'm asking. I'm asking in the world of the book, who can't w- w- when you can't see the narrator because you're inside of it. Right. Do they really think that she, are we are we supposed to think that they really think she's smart? Was was the question. So, I thought that they were that the men were kind of blowing smoke up her ass, but also that she knows that that's what they're doing and that she uses that to her advantage, right? Like, so I mean, I do, I, I mean, she's not, you know, she's not, she's, you know, well, one, I think she, she's quite young, right? I mean, is she, is, she, is yeah. she supposed to be in her 20s or she's like, I think she's she, like 19. Yeah, right. So, I mean, she's not, you know, there's a lot of stuff about the, you know, that she hasn't read and she, you know, her class background is supposed to be very, you know, not, not rich at all. So, I mean, I think there's like sort of education differentials, but in terms, I mean, like she gets what she wants out of like everyone in this book and she does that through her own very strategic sort of machinations, right? So like, I thought that like, yeah, yeah the, like the, 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 like, I don't know that Eisman thinks that she's, she's actually smart. I think other men assume that she's not, but also that she very much knows that and is very strategic in how she uses that to her advantage. Yeah, I think that's how I had taken it too. That it's like, I don't even know if it's that she's smart so much as that she's like a tactician or something. Right. Well, and I guess how you're defining smart too, right? Like, I mean, I mean, sure. Like, I mean, there's there's a, there's a lot of things that she doesn't know, but she well, knows she's how not to- making the joke about D.W. Griffiths. Like, Anita Luz is making that joke. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's right. So, and, and I think I think that that's like another layer, right? That we have to distinguish Luz's like voice as the author versus like Lorelai's like knowledge as as narrator. But I mean, I think she definitely has a very kind. Of, savvy kind of intelligence and a lot of capability that that's um you know a lot i don't know i mean like i think dorothy is probably smarter than, than oh, Lorelai, yeah. but of all the other characters in the novel i don't know that there's another it's all the men to- are such hopeless dipshits <laughs> yeah. that it's hard to like imagine that they could all be manipulated in this way it's like well yeah you don't have to even be a brain genius yeah but does that yeah. i mean does that sound right katie uh, that sounds completely right to me. This makes sense. I think we have uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, whatever the fuck <laughs> yeah, they are. We did um, the dialectic. Yeah, okay. <laughs> look at us doing the damn dialectic. But I think that I guess the unstated part of my question is, how dumb are the guys? You know what Very. I mean? Very, like, yes. do they think <laughs> she's smart because they're so dumb or that? Yes. But this this all tracks. And I think we have we have uh, – we have possibilities within the general within the general frame. They've I think they're also men who 
don't know their own stupidity, think they're smarter than they are. So they're like, oh, she's fascinating. So they yeah. think that they're not just using their dicks. They think that they're like, oh, no, like she's a fascinating person. So <clears throat> I should like educate her up. And of course, like she actually is a very yes. interesting person, but they're not interested in that. No, they're right. They're right. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, this dank. I love to be able to check on the podcast whether or not I have understood a book correctly. <laughs> and it seems like we're okay actually here. I think so. I think we've like come to an accord. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I Yeah. And with no no fisticuffs or anything. So none. Congratulations to all of us. <laughs> but I'm going to start back again when we're in Paris. Yes. Paris? Yes. Okay. But so they go to the Eiffel Tower and then there's a kink in the plans. Um, Lady Frances Beekman knows about the diamond tiara that her husband had bought for Lorelai. And so she comes to London. She comes to Paris to confront Lorelai. And then when she gets to the hotel, Dorothy says that she, she thinks Lady Frances Beekman resembles Bill Hart quite a lot, only she really <laughs> thinks she looks more like Bill Hart than Bill Hart's horse. <laughs> Oh man, Dorothy is fucking cutthroat. <laughs> because Dorothy is amazing. There's a scene at the end that I don't actually like talk all the way through, but um apparently she can't stop laughing at Lorelai's wedding because she thinks it's so funny that she has to like reflect on the Armenian genocide to keep herself from laughing. <laughs> oh god, yeah. Oh yes. Oh yeah, I forgot that one. Yeah. yeah. And this is what we mean mm. when we say this book is a lot smarter than it's taken for. Anyway, okay, so Lady Francis Beekman's lawyer shows up and then he, the next day, and he doesn't speak English. So there's this like madcap 1920s farce. But then his son arrives, he does speak English. And it turns out that they're there to recover the diamond tiara. But Lorelai has this like fake tiara made out of paste and hides the real one in a safe. And because the guys who one of them is called robert and it's written as robber in the book mm, yeah now i can't remember what the other one is called so sorry about that louis yes. and they give him a it's number because it's like oh french louis they all have a number because you know the kid yeah louis <laughs> like, 16 yeah louis, yeah louis yeah there's a, there's a scene where they're walking at versailles actually it's funny so okay but because they're on the case lady beekman is paying their expensive so lorelei and dorothy go nuts with the shopping because that's their fave. And then there, so there are like some shenanigans where each guy tries to buy the tiara from Dorothy for heightening amounts of money. But at long last, they just buy a different fake tiara to give to Lady Beekman. So now she has a fake and a real in her possession. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. Day and night looks. Stupid wives. <laughs> okay, so then Lorelai and Dorothy said out for her words the central of europe men wise always Cre important creamy center the creamy <laughs> avarian cream right now <laughs> yeah, that's true. on the train they meet the accidentally hilarious quite rich very very famous presbyterian henry spofford so she tells Stafford that she's on Stafford, Stafford. I have a Spofford. Spofford that she's on this trip to try and reform Dorothy because being the funny brunette best friend is unrefined. <laughs> 
And she's always saying funny things to the Prince of Wales or whatever. And Lorelai gets really embarrassed. So Spofford is super into the idea of reforming Dorothy because his favorite hobbies are reforming people and censoring movies. And one of the things he does is he censors movies and strings together the censored bits and watches them over and over again, which is definitely not a sex thing. Yeah, he's definitely not masturbating while he does that for sure. No, he does not have he does he does not have one hand down his pants watching those movies that he edited. I also I loved that in in the movie they make Spofford like a ten year old boy, which actually is an amazing ode on the novel character. Yeah, that's actually kind of a kind of a choice that I yeah. enjoy. Yeah. Oh, okay. This actually enriches my understanding of the character. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Because that's what a ten-year-old boy would get horny about is censored yeah. movies. Yeah, the censored yeah, part yeah. of movies because because it's not scary. Right. Yeah. True. Yeah. So those are his hobbies, and he is traveling with his rather dim mother and her companion, Miss Chapman, and like the the sort of like is this a companion companion angle mm-hmm. of that is like maybe, but I don't think so. No, I didn't get I, that. I did not pick up on that. Okay, I didn't think that either. This is not how we feel about Spofford's sister who comes along later, who is butch as hell and yes. is delightful. Yes, that's a, yes, amazing, amazing minor character. Yeah. So they're all traveling together and he convinces Lorelai and Dorothy to get off the train in Munich to see all the Kunst. <laughs> yep. That's the joke. Nice German pun there. Yeah. Nice yeah. German pun there, which just means art, P.S. in German. And... So the setting up Dorothy for infinite jokes. So in one of the theaters, Dorothy says, it's supposed to be artsy. She says, if this is Kunst, the art center of the world is Union Hill, New Jersey. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And Katie is like trembling with glee. (laughs) That's one of those nice layered jokes where it's like, oh, owning Bavarian art, also making a C word joke about New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) And the people of New Jersey approve. We like Dorothy quite a bit. (laughs) I thought that her sass would fit in well. Yes, we we like the cut of her jib. And I speak for every New Jerseyan when I say that. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, so in Vienna, Lorelai is starting to have a bit of a tough time keeping Eisman and Spofford apart. There's the part where she like walks down to the lobby of the hotel and they're both there and she has to pretend not to see either of them. But you know what? That's life. That's just how it is and so because of she's been like staying up late trying to manage two different men spofford says like oh she's doing too much she's very tired and he sends her to see some viennese doctor you don't know him (laughs) you won't recognize his name it's it's just a like really um secret low-key joke (laughs) how does she butcher it i forget it's spelled Uh f-r-o-y-d Right. Oh, Cole. Yeah. <laughs> Freud. Dr. Cole. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's one of those like phonetic. It's fine phonetically. So when she talks to Freud or whatever this guy's name is, who's actually like very nice and lovely in this yeah. novel. Yeah. He is surprised. He, he says, tell me about your dreams. And she says, I don't dream. And he says, well, what dreams are for is people working at their inhibitions and you don't have any inhib- have you ever thought of doing anything violent and she's like yeah but it just you know the bullet just struck him 
<laughs> and he was like, oh, so you have no inhibitions. And he's like, all right, go get some sleep and some inhibitions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. It's amazing. Okay, so after this, it seems that Henry Spofford wants Lorelai to at last meet his mother and Miss Chapman, who she totally charms to death. So then Henry asks her to marry him. She accepts, but he has to return to the U.S. because his father is ill. Um, Lorelai and Dorothy return to the States as well, both because of that and also because Iceman is like, there's only so much education I can afford. And then when they get back, her engagement is all over the papers because he's like a fancy, rich Presbyterian. And Lorelai and Dorothy begin planning her debut, her society debut. There's another really funny moment where they ask Dorothy. They ask Dorothy a lot of these questions because she's sort of her PR person right now. And um, they say like, oh, where did she where did she do her coming out, like her debutante coming out? And she says, oh, at the Elks Club in Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> which is technically true but it really pisses Lorelai off and like because this book is this book she and Dorothy like invite everyone they know which is the racket club all of the follies dancers the bootlegger Joe Sanguinetti and all of his guys who are have some funny name too and all the society people and it's a huge success that lasts for like four days yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> four days that sends that sends a, a judge who's there to like the hospital with alcohol poisoning. Yep. Like, it's it, it was a very Fitzgeraldian affair for sure. But, but funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but not sad, right? Like, but not sad, right. <laughs> uh so at the end, Lorelai meets the fella she really likes. His name is Gilbert Montrose, and he's a centerist, of course. So she's trying to bump Henry. And Lorelai and Dorothy concoct this cockamamie scheme to get him to break up with her. But halfway through, she's like, oh, shit, I didn't mean it. I want to marry this guy. And so she's like, oh, don't you get my funny joke about how I tried to, like, break up with you? And then in the end, this is, like, so good. She convinces Henry that he has to make the world a better place. And the way we will do this is by making pure films which he can spend his entire waking life censoring. (laughs) (laughs) And she can be in the movies, of course. But, you know, sadly, they can't go on a honeymoon because she has to spend all this time with Gilbert Montrose writing these scripts. Yeah, yeah, cool. So get your rich husband to finance your acting career and hanging out and banging your boyfriend. Yep. (laughs) So it all works out. She has her scripts, her dopey husband, awful family her boyfriend all sewn up well done Lorelai Lee truly the heroine we needed amen the blonde Ab- we've all been looking for absolutely and start just one detail to interject right with it because you mentioned uh Spofford's dad who is like I mean he's he's in he's like you know I mean he's very old and he almost has a heart attack because he gets so horny when he sees Lorelai yep. I love that Dorothy can, it, it encourages her to do an Anna Nicole Smith J Howard Marshall thing oh yeah, like, yeah. Don't, don't marry the young damn ship. he's gonna live for decades marry the old dude he'll die in like in two six weeks. months and he'll get his money yeah don't yeah don't you don't you want a man who will get horny for you in the style of looney tunes and then drop dead <laughs> and, and, and realize just like oh you know that's not a bad idea actually no it's so good it's, it's great, um yeah. and i think i missed it in my summary but his sister that who she meets on one of these like weekends in 
Pennsylvania where the, his family goes to church three times a day and Laura's like, oh my fucking God. Like, yeah. I'm too tired to go to church at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is like a perfectly understandable thing to feel. No, definitely, yeah. definitely. And I love that she she was like an ambulance driver or something in in, in the war. Yeah. And now all she wants to do is yeah is, is take apart their farm equipment and put it back together. Which, as you said, Meg, I was like, wow, this is. I mean, this is like pretty explicitly like typed as queer character here. Like, oh yeah, at the end, and which is just. But I mean, it's 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 great, and I mean, it's also like she's not like the object of, of any kind of like, like mean spirited joke. I mean, I, it is, it is no. comic, but I think it's comic and we're kind of like good for her, you know, like I found it. So it seems that Henry's sister has never been the same since the war because she never had on a man's collar and a necktie until she drove an ambulance in the war. And now they cannot get her to take them off because ever since the armistice, Henry's sister seems to have the idea that regular women's clothes are effeminate. So Henry's sister seems to think nothing but either horses or automobiles. And when she's not in a garage, the only other place she is happy is in a stable. And then at the end, they because they're working in the movies, she gets to like have horses and cars. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's like it's just it's not mean spirited at all. It's really like really funny. No, and I mean she, you know, this is this is a novel of 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 women really uh you know, essentially get being able to do what they want to do and, and oh, yeah, they do whatever game. the fuck they want. It's great. Yeah. And she is very much in. I mean, that's what she's doing, you know. So Anita Luz, lover, woman of glitz and glamour, lady that makes fun of things, screenwriter, raconteuse, friend to all the society shitheads. She started as a screenwriter and a script doctor. She told she sold 12 screenplays by the time she was 24. Yeah, holy shit, right? She did actually do a serious rewrite on Intolerance, which she thought was the stupidest movie ever, and she makes fun of it in this novel. She wrote The Women from the like the Clara Luce Booth play. She wrote The Redheaded Woman for Jean Harlow. She wrote lots and lots of other movie, movies like silent films, talkies. She wrote short fiction. She wrote this novel. She wrote a ton of like personal essays and autobiography. She's great, yeah. But mostly she wrote for the movies. Okay, so Gentlemen Prefer Blondes came out originally as a series of short stories in Harper's Bazaar, which published both like fashion spreads and modernist fiction. So like Virginia Woolf and Fitzgerald and Vita Sackville West and stuff. And so the reason it was there is because Mencken, who we've talked about, who was a friend of Luz's and also the worst person in the world, encouraged her to publish it there because it would be lost among the ads because he's a shit. Yeah. And I'm going to do a tiny Mencken related tangent because I like talking about him because he's awful. So he wouldn't publish the stories in his magazine, The American Mercury, because he thought that she was making fun of sex and that's never been done before in the USA, which is just empirically not true, but also very stick up your butt to think like, I'll never publish anything that makes fun of sex. He was aware she was extremely dunking on him, right? No, I don't think so. Because <laughs> oh, he's God. a he's he's a lot of things. He wrote a book called In Defense of Women, which he did not no, we, seem to be aware of. She's making fun of it. Yeah, we do need we do need considerable defending. <laughs> I I think so. Yeah, he's like a modernist gatekeeper, but he's also a complete libertarian psychopath, and he loved Nazis. So, like, those are cool. Also, she clearly makes fun of like 
she makes fun of everything in this novel, but there's a number of people who have Nazi sympathies, and she's like, those fucking dickheads. Right. I mean, so in uh, mid-20s, right, is the time when, because I think Mencken did the thing that like Lindbergh and a lot of other Americans, where they try, like, you know, once we were at war uh, with Hitler, was kind of like, to oh, cover their asses. Like, oh, no, I, I never, what are you talking about? But but it's, uh, and, and also just that fucking contrarian libertarian thing is like, oh, everyone thinks Hitler's bad. Well, I'm going to take the other side, you know, but like, um, yeah. but I'm just going to say to, uh, to quote Gus, the, uh, the awesome assistant uh, Metro editor from The Wire, fuck Henry Lewis Mankin. <laughs> I've never heard a better <laughs> critique of Mankin than that. Yeah. So Mankin writes in he in defense of women is like actually kind of hilarious because it's like oh women are actually like very very tricky and there's he he says they're smarter than men but he doesn't mean it in the way that Luz is smarter than men he means it in the way that Lorelai is smarter than men. Like, she's better at that. She she plays the game well. And so he says something about, like, that women should get married because of the, you know, quote, security, but also that it, it affords her a certain dignity, which is stupid. And he says it's regarded with respect by other women and has a contemptuous patronage for those who have failed to do likewise, which is, like, has he talked to women? <laughs> Well, it's not that he doesn't talk to women. It's the other part of the conversation when you're supposed to not be talking that he probably has a problem with. <laughs> That's a good point. But he's also like one of the things that he can't see is that there would be this critique of capital that loses leveling in this, which is like, ah, fuck all the – like the rules are stupid. And so if the rules are like you got to marry this guy or fuck this guy, take him for a ride. Nobody gives a shit. Well, lots of people do. But like nobody should. Well, and – one of the reasons why I find Mencken so obnoxious, in addition to his like horrible reactionary politics, is that like in that sort of reactionary, like sort of satirist vein, he mistakes cynicism with some sort like that. Basically, his posture to the world is one of like pure cynicism, right? Totally. Like, and, and but it doesn't go to structure. Like basically, his point is like people are dumb, and like he thinks that that is some like just staggering innovation, but it, it never goes beyond that with him um in a way that I, other more kind of like what you would say conservative writers like i mean i think swift you know way oh, back, yeah. is much much smarter than that and actually does have things to say about structures and and systems that aren't just like oh look how much smarter than everyone i am you know right even like and swift is a is a total dick i don't think you're claiming otherwise no no but no like, of course yeah he is absolutely there's no such thing as a modest proposal without an awareness of there being a structure, right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, this just yeah, can't exist. Exactly, exactly yeah. yeah. And that this is, he doesn't really recognize this as, he says it, he thinks, he doesn't say this, he says it's a satire, but he doesn't get the thing it's satirizing. Yeah, for sure. He thinks it's satirizing that people are, are either, like, money-hungry bitches or morons. And her money-hungry bitchiness is incredibly funny because nobody deserves money. You know what I'm saying? Like these yeah, men yeah. don't deserve the money yeah. they have. Take it. Yes. If you yes. can get nobody a diamond tight tiara, take it. Yes. Everybody should have money, but the wealth is the, the – the, these are just rich fucking shit. You know what I mean? Like it's it's one of these things where it's like you have to take the money from the rich shitheads so that everyone can have money. Right. It's yeah. not going to come to you just by your will or something. You just you got to trick people. 
Yeah, and and also that like uh, you know, I mean, this this, is, <laughs> this doesn't you know square well with like a Marxist programmatic, but like if you're just like okay, the whole fucking game is stupid, but all right, this is what I'm this is basically what I got to do so that you know because I you know that's a pretty dismissive attitude towards like what capital is, which is like again way smarter than I think like Mencken's you know, uh, view of the world would allow where, where it's basically like, Oh, look, uh, this, this individual is a dumbass and I can make fun of that. You know, it's, it's, yeah. Well, he would mistake that he would make that, I think like really common mistake, which is that something that is like funny and that she has like some degree of psychology, although it's not very full that she can't both be like funny and, and have this great writing and also be have a reflection on structures because that would be like a bad book. This is very new criticism, right? Like, this is the moment for it. So the last piece of this, I'm going to rely on some observations from my friend and former student, Mary Reichman, who wrote an amazing MA on Luz and Scott Fitzgerald. Um, I learned from Donna Haraway that it's a, that it's like very, very cool to like quote your students unpublished work because they fucking deserve it. That's my PSA. Hell yeah. I'm giving her credit. This is not, I'm not like, I'm going to steal your ideas. So she makes these great points in this paper, and I'm going to sort of mention a couple of them. One is that she argues that um, gentlemen prefer blondes, performs its self-aware position as popular literature by speaking to the audience of Harper's Bazaar in concert with the ads. Like it knows where it's going to land. So it's talking to the ads and the fashion stories and the society articles. She points to this this page spread where Lorelai is talking about the Coty perfume, and there's literally a Coty ad on the other side. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking good. Uh, it's um, awesome. And so she says that like part of this is that the stories as they appear in this sort of like advertising context skewers the Hollywood film in particular, which like invests a lot of energy in celebrating capital. And like cute, cute women, and that loses like really thinking about that a lot. And then Mary also argues that the book is a really good example of modernism that makes fun of modernism. We can see this in the way that, like, so literary culture lost its shit over this novel. Like, Wharton loved it, and James Joyce loved it, and like everybody and their mom thought this was the best book they'd ever read, and including Faulkner, who wrote Loose the most fucked up letter I've ever read. <laughs> Why, what he's say? like this book was fine but women are stupid oh, i mean it's not quite that literal but it's pretty close it's yeah it's amazing and right so joyce is is interesting here because like the gentleman prefer blondes actually follows a lot of like modernist conventions in the sense that there's all this free and direct discourse she uses this specialized vernacular but it is also like exhausted. It would not go into this idea of like being unreadable or mm-hmm. morose. All modernists, except Joyce, are extremely morose. That's their thing. <laughs> it uh, is kind yeah. of their thing, isn't it? The funnest version of the dangerously heavy drinker, the the morose, <laughs> the morose alcoholic. Dude, right? for real. Although uh, Joyce was an alcoholic too, and you know, he seemed fun. 
Yeah. He, well, right. I mean, we, 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 we were through, we went through this in season one. He, he is the only of the, the kind of the high only modernist, fun modernist, the only the, like high modernist that you would actually want to spend time with. Certainly not Ezra Pound. He was really a Nazi. You know? Oh, for sure. No, that's a great point. It's like, I guess I'd even rather hang out with F. Scott Fitzgerald than Ezra Pound. Oh yeah. No, I, I, for me, I think the order would be, well, now that I've read this, I would say probably lose then joys then Fitzgerald, then way, way down. I mean, I would like have a beer with her in some way and then leave probably. You know, but. I would definitely have a beer with Gertrude Stein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Stein, oh, Stein. Like she actually seems like kind of a blast. <laughs> anyway, those are some thoughts. That's some context. I think we can just jump right into talking about gender, class, gender, sexuality, gender. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well and also so, tits. I mean. Tits, tits, tits. <laughs> yeah. She is always wearing her underpants. Like she's like, I had on my negligee when somebody came over. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Well, no, I I, and I mentioned like that. Oh, as I'm reading this, oh, this is picaresque, you know, right? Like, um, which it kind of, it it kind of is, with a few, I guess, a few notable divergences from that kind of historic form. One is that you know it's focused on women, not men. Although I should say that that's not exclusive to picaresque, right? Like Defoe, uh, two real, like uh, Roxana and Mall Flanders are both kind of examples of of a a female picaresque. But I do think it it tends to because, like, you know, just particularly throughout the like 19th century kind of Victorian culture, the idea that women weren't supposed to to act out in this in this sort right. of way it kind of uh, riffs on that but i think one thing that it, it does share definitely with the picaresque is that this sort of like social world of that kind of version of of the novel which is kind of about like a sort of like underworld character or i mean involved in very comic uh you know someone that is is outside of established social conventions it creates this whole kind of social landscape that is true you know that's real or that tries to be true but like that is not the kind of established narrative of what high society is, right? Like, I mean, the idea that you have these unmarried, you know, very young women who are, you know, having lots and lots of sex with these old rich guys, that's not like the American kind of upper like rich upper class version of what social life is supposed to look like. Um, And yet, I mean, we read this and we're like, oh yeah, I mean, obviously this is a huge part, but so, so it, it shows us an aspects of class that we don't see in more kind of official uh, uh, things, but, but also the idea that class is fluid and like, certainly the protagonists are not troubled by that, nor I think, are we supposed to be as readers? It never crossed my mind until you said that, that I was like, oh no, this shit is the American dream. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. Like that is so and it also like puts it in such great contradistinction to Fitzgerald, who's so like entranced by this class demarcation. You know, and Gatsby, who's so tragic because he's trying to be like a social climber, right? That he's like, Oh, right. the tragedy of the bourgeoisie or whatever. I'm not gonna make an actual point here, but I'll goddamn it, I'll try, you know. I think there's something about the, the moment where she's like swapping the fucking tiaras, like the paste, the paste and the and the real mm-hmm. diamond tiara, and um and they both wind up sort of being worth the same amount because she's gonna like do a scam with them or whatever. But then the oh, yeah. thing that marks her as not being one of these, I guess, hoity-toity fancy high society people is that she takes the she takes the tiara out of the pocket of the guy after she's stolen it like in case she wants it later like that gesture 
felt in some way Gatsby-esque to me, like just reaching for the, like making sure you have your hand on the thing, even if you know it's not really worth anything or whatever else. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, is it wrong? I guess I thought of it as like, you'll never know it'll need this for another scam. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think that's like the truer. I think that's the truer meaning. And well, and, and also, I mean, I guess that because like Jay, Jay Gatsby himself, like there's an element of the kind of the, the, the scam too, or like the right. I mean, I don't know. I haven't oh, read yeah. that book since, since high school. And, uh, you know, um, sorry, like, so what, one thing I was going to say again on the, the sort of like the, the kind of class, class uh, aspect and, and just how it sort of inverts these conventions and thinks they're ridiculous. There is this joke that also gets to something else we we're going to talk about, which is like, you know, Jewishness alterity uh, in the novel, uh, which I mean, we, I, we don't have to get there just yet, but I, because I think it goes to this point that we're on where, uh, where Lady Beekman shows up and she's like, I shall ruin your, your reputation. And, uh, and Dorothy said, so, so Dorothy spoke up and said, Lady, you could no more or ruin my girlfriend's reputation than you could sink the Jewish fleet. I mean, I was quite proud of Dorothy the way she stood up for my reputation because I really think that there is nothing so wonderful as two girls when they stand up for each other and uh, help each other a lot. Okay, so it, like that, it, yeah, it's kind of casually anti-Semitic joke. The, the punchline, of course, is there is no Jewish fleet, right? So Lorelai has no reputation, uh, which Lorelai, uh-huh. which Lorelai, uh, you know, interprets as saying something completely different. That like, oh, right. she's making this claim about like, you oh, can't you sink a fleet. Yeah, you can't sink a fleet. But I mean, I think, and again, like we'll get to the kind of the alterity uh, valence in, in, in a couple minutes. But I do think the other thing, though, is it's like, oh, this thing, reputation that you care about. Yeah, that's not the world we live in. And we don't yeah. care about that, right? Nor n- nor is our not having a reputation in your sense, something that we feel as like this inhibiting thing. Like, frankly, it lets us do all of this shit and like fuck your husband and get many thousands of pounds of diamonds out of him, you know? I mean, and she yeah, basically and the- says at some point, like, I'm going to drag your ass to court. I don't care. I don't give a shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's it related to the court thing. The le- She, in fact, would have a reputation if she had her original name of the- that she had when she shot the guy or the, the, the bullet, you yes. know, it found its way into Hit the boyfriend. Guy. Then she says that the judge or who is it? The, the judge the or judge. someone told her told yeah, her she judge. needed to change her name and gave her Lorelai. Yeah. Right. Just like this turned out great last time. Reputation. Well, I'll just get a new one if this one goes south. Yeah. No, that's right. And we I think I, at least I tended to forget that as I reading like Lorelai Lorelai Lee is an alias. We do not know her real name. We don't name. know her name. Yeah. Also, that's right. though, it doesn't fucking matter, right? Because like Exactly. Yeah. If you're yeah. not Lady Bobbington the 50th yes. of Snodgrassington and that matters to you, then yeah, you just swap yes. it out. Yes, Lady Beekman could never have that kind of like uh I don't know if I want to think of it as power because I do think that like the, the sort of like class power differential is important, but it's a Again, it's, it's like not, a tactical not, thing. Yeah, and it's not not power either, right? It's kind of like inventing like yeah. creating your own power within this system that tries to not let you have it because of, you know, class position, gender position and everything else. And again, this is the Gatsby, right? She's like, I made it up. I made up my persona. I take money because rich people don't deserve it anyway. So who gives a shit? And Mm. like, she's a grifter. That's the other thing is that it's like utterly charming. And she put, she, you know, this woman makes herself up and she puts herself, her puts her among the fucking Prince of Wales. He's like, what a lovely. 
Yeah. Yeah, and and if she were if she were with us today, she would have like a hot girl Instagram, and she'd be selling whatever fucking leggings, and uh, <laughs> you know, pretending she was going to put on Fire Fest. Oh, yeah. I don't agree. I think that she would have uh, fans only, and she would be selling her dirty panties. <laughs> oh yeah, she'd totally be doing that. Obviously, True. whoever's doing that, keep fucking doing it. I'm jealous. But uh, but no, she she would be she would be uh, very much exploiting some form of social media to her to her advantage for sure. You know. Yes. Um, well, and it does care. Like this is sort of gesturing to what you're talking about, Tristan. Is like it knows the class demarcations among the bourgeois and the aristocratic, but mm-hmm. it doesn't. It only cares about them to extremely limited degrees. So it's like this this thing where she makes fun of writers, which again. Yeah. Love it. And then she makes fun of people who have titles is like this yeah. amazing thing. And she does actually make fun of the sort of like mostly but not exclusively Jewish self-made millionaire. Right. Well, that, I mean, that's the thing, right? I think it's like it only cares about the distinction between the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy, which again, to rehearse, I mean, the bourgeoisie is, I, I mean, you can shorthand is like new money and it's, it is, it is money out of capital largely is where it's coming from. Whereas like the aristocracy, it's title, it's land. It's supposed to be this fucking ancient shit, although it's just as bullshit and it's just as made up as the bourgeoisie. But, but I think like the extent to, to which the novel cares about that is to make fun of people for caring about that. And to basically be like, you are all, the exact same dumbass you know some of you just have like a funny name that the queen gave you you know well that's part of why i think the joke about ginsburg being mount gins is so smart because it's like he can't really cover up that he's jewish but the way that you do that in this case if you're like rich and stupid is to think that you are gonna do it by like taking the name of these like nazi inbred pointless shitheads Absolutely. And, and I also say, like, I don't, I mean, I, I, my claim is not at all that the, the Mountains joke is there's not like anti-Semitism there. I mean, I think it, 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 there is. Yes, I agree. But I also don't think it's like, I don't think it is offered as a particularly like kind of viciously intended mean spirited, like, cause the Ginsburg, we, we very, we meet him very briefly. He actually seems like kind of like a, charming goofy guy that she likes and also like yeah i mean i think the point is actually like oh does this look ridiculous to you that he renamed himself mountain gins how the fuck is that any different than you assholes renaming yourself mountain batten to because like oh well we were at war with germany and we can't be german even though you know fucking kaiser wilhelm was like what victoria's grandson or some shit like that you know but no, it's amazing. Like all of this renaming stuff. Also, I think that there's a little bit of, you know, they're no different because they're rich people, but also like, why not change your name? Like why? It doesn't make any, it doesn't make you less rich. Yeah. You know, old money, new money, it's all fucking money and you don't deserve it. Yeah. So, I mean, like a couple of things, like one, I do think that like the novel really try, uh, wants to collapse any sort of distinction between the way these like shitty guys make their money or like these shitty guys ancestors made their money once upon a time with their aristocrats and what Lorelai and Dorothy are doing. I mean, I think that's very much its point. It's like there is no fucking difference. And like if it's cool that you guys did this, it's absolutely cool what we're doing. I also think, too, that there is an interesting way in which it wants us to think about 
about the kind of um, the, the gender and class positions of, the, of our protagonist and her, her best friend, alongside other uh, people who don't quite fit in with the kind of established narrative of waspy bourgeois slash aristocratic society. I think Jewish people are a big one, as we said, like Eisman, who interestingly, the film renames Esmond, which that's like a Oh, they de Jewify him. Yeah, yeah. It's like, huh, that's pretty yeah. Um, but he comes off better than like most, certainly the ultra wasp Henry Spofford. A nice thing about about him is that he's not there very often. You know, he just lets them sort yeah, of take yeah. their ride. Yeah, he does. Uh, for for sure, for sure. Um and and yeah, like Ginsburg too, as I said, I mean like yeah, there is a joke at his expense with the whole Mount Gins thing, but it's much more vicious about other male dumbasses in the novel. And I, you know, I I don't know. I just kept wondering if there wasn't some sort of positive like kind of um simpatico quality between like Lorelai and you know like yeah Eisman right because he's not because you know he's not as as rich as he becomes he's never going to be a wasp he's never going to be like you know presumably a member of like the racket club or something like that right so I I just didn't know (laughs) racket club yeah yeah it's a great great name uh, right for this fucking blue blood endeavor right but I didn't know how far the novel wanted us to go down that route so I guess I'm just kind of asking as a question like I mean does that sound right to you guys that there is this kind of like I don't know some kind of a line between them maybe on on the basis of their outsideriness or does it not really go down in that direction i think that it's the book is just not reverent enough to sort of like produce that sort of alterity across that particular kind of line yeah no i mean i i also yeah i mean so that's my question right and that 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 also makes sense to me um I mean, I I don't know. I'm not like the arbiter of of yeah. interpretation. It's just like it doesn't quite it doesn't quite work for me in the sense that like the cat the class categories to me are really like her and everybody else. I hate to ride the fence because all you end up with is a sore ass. But like, <laughs> I I think you're actually both right. Fuck, I'm just I'm just gonna sound like a ding dong but there are certain types of categories that you can fit into even though the novel through the lens of the novel megan i agree with you that it just is her and everybody you know what i mean like we just orient ourselves around her but it also lays out sort of options of things you can be right I think that like what I was saying about like, oh, it suggests this kind of like, you know, sympathy and like, uh, you know, outsideriness. Like I, I agree, Megan, I do agree with you. I, like, I don't think, I think it's an interesting possibility that the novel ultimately doesn't probably go down that road. But to kind of what you're saying, Katie, I think that maybe one function of characters like Eisman, who like in another book, I mean, like, you know, 1920s, an era of like rife anti-Semitism, absolutely, that his Jewishness would have been really, a pro- could have been really be constructed as a problem like what does that mean and what it's kind of saying is like all of you people meeting like rich fucking dumbass guys are the same (laughs) you know like you're but also like the rich dumbass guys are the people who give a shit about that right like it's the aristocracy who are the people who think that there's a line between this money and that money or jews and gentiles or like you see what i'm saying so it's like there are a group of people who deeply care about this it's not Lorelai and it's not the novel it's not the novel in the sense that it's not Lorelai but the novel still 
that like it's not like Luz doesn't know this, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, no, she totally does. I just think that what she's skewering there is the aristocrats who give a yeah, shit about it. Right. It's yeah, it's like there are people who give a shit about it. They they are this if there is like one super target of, of the satire of this novel, it is the people who give a shit about it, right? That 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 think, think it matters so. or that it signifies in some way that uh Lorelei certainly does it, and I don't think the novel does either. I mean, and that's like what I mean by that's why the novel is like money is money. Like if you got a lot of it, she's going to take it. Yes. It's the other. It's a certain group of morons who care where that money who made it and that you that for you to have it. They care about where you made it. Clues is like, who gives a shit? It's too much money. It's getting stolen. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. No, totally, totally. There are just there are different ways of caring about things. And yeah, uh, Lorelai observes no distinctions. It's like it, you know, it's all a yes or no. Right. But we know that that, other people give a shit. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. They're wrong, but they do. Or else he wouldn't be Mount Gins. (laughs) He wouldn't need to change his name into this incredibly stupid other name. Yep. Exactly. On that note, what are we playing? Are we playing this is a group of people to whom that gentlemen don't prefer? (laughs) No, this is actually a much uh, worse game than that. It is a game about what gentlemen do prefer as brought to us by Cosmopolitan.com. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) This better not Uh, be filthy. Incorporate food into sex. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, the fa- the infamous donut incident. <laughs> yeah, just bring out yeah, do- yeah, donuts, right? There's cake. Just why not? Right? <laughs> Everybody just wants cake all- in their bits. Yeah. Yeah, just do all that shit in a doctor's office parking lot so that they can use whatever <laughs> special machinery to hose you down. Yes, <laughs> as we learned on a recent episode. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but I just thought that this was a really appropriate article. Appropriate because it's, you know, it's just appropriate for all for all to to know of. Um and also oh, it's I'm sorry, I just they- thought of something that's from the actual discussion, and I'm sorry, but she's not even a real blonde and that matters because it's not even real and she made it up, that's all. <laughs> Curtains don't match the drapes. Well, you know what Dolly Parton says, which is I know I'm not a dumb blonde because I'm not really dumb and I'm not really blonde. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I thought. It was funny. Okay, Cosmo. Back to important matters of state, such as Cosmopolitan magazine. So gentlemen prefer blondes. Uh, How many many gentlemen are there? There surely can't be more than 6,000. And 6,000 is the number of horny guys in Cosmo's sex poll. It says the Cosmo sex poll. 6,000 horny guys tell all. Did they not go with the less horny guys? No, they only wanted horny ones. All right. All right. That's a they choice. They demanded. <laughs> that was the first question is how horny are you? It, well, they, they did it with askmen.com and the ages <laughs> were between 18 and 35. So, yeah, I'm thinking they're horny. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, also just like, you know, what about the ones who are sleepy? I really feel for them. I guess you <laughs> yeah, can be sleepy and horny. Ask men. Yeah, no, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> Here's how the game's going to work. I am going to give you the question and one of the responses, and I just would like you two to guess what percentage of men chose that thing. 
Excellent. So for instance, okay, so we're just gonna let's let's get into it. Things gentlemen prefer. Some of these may not be gentlemen, I have to confess. Um, <laughs> the question that was posed to these these thousands, these scores of horny men is, what's the no-fail move that immediately gets you ready for sex? So I'm asking you both to guess what percentage of men elected when she grabs my crotch. So can they pick more than one or is it like the percentages all add up to 100? It adds up to 100. Adds up to 100. Okay. Who wants to have your genitals just squeezed by surprise? Yeah, what percentage? (laughs) We're we're doing Price is Right rules. So. Oh, All right. right. Bob Barker running a Cosmo sex quiz. Uh, 23. (laughs) uh, 23 oh man see i unfortunately think this is gonna be like fucking 80 percent or more am i giving men too much credit well and i I don't mean men i mean the six thousand men in this survey i obviously mean exactly exactly and i i think you might be but let's see i'm just assuming that the other options are things like flash them your boobies Mm -hmm. which obviously is gonna get more well, I'll tell you, uh, just a more popular choice, a, a, a more popular choice is a really long, steamy kiss. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I'm going with 23%. I'm happy with that. <laughs> uh, 80. <laughs> 80? Price is right, rules. There has to be a more popular choice, Tristan. Wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, did I, I mean, not explain Price is Right rules? No, no, no. It's closest I, without going. No, I've got it. what Price is Right got rules it. are. So, I'm sorry. I thought we were moving on to a new question and you were just throwing that out as another as another uh as as another thing that was on that particular question. Okay, so I said 80 before. 10. Okay. Cuz I got I got to I got to get to 100. Right? So. <laughs> got to get to gosh dang 100. Okay. So, here's number 2. What percentage of men said now this is interesting phrasing of the question what over the top move would you like to try what percentage answered getting it on in a public place getting sand up in the in all sorts <laughs> of cracks and crevices graveyard dirt lizard up your pee hole yeah. all of it <laughs> doing everything i think it's really high i think it's like 41 percent. yeah uh, that sounds right to me i i might even go a little higher i'm not going to the 80s again because uh, then math starts to get weird um i'll say i'll say i'll say i'll say 52 <laughs> i'm just assuming in every one of these that one of the answers is something totally and completely wacko like the over-the-top move you want to try is being fired out of a cannon while fucking. (laughs) So the the choices are like rather circumscribed, I think, because Mm -hmm. they give you, they they do add up to 100, but the other choices are videotaping the two of us together. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Fire up the VHS machine. (laughs) Because we're about to videotape. Dudes use the word videotaping. Yeah. Oh, oh, what over the top move would you like to try talking dirty? Over the top? 
That's would okay. you would you like to try? What huh. are these people doing? <laughs> this is like what well, is this, the conversation? This is like? perfect. This is this is like perfect Cosmo, right? Because it is simultaneously like grosser, but also like the boringest shit. Pot, right? It's it's like it's right, like, are you in <laughs> high school? Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, right. It, it's like it, yeah, that's exactly right. It's like it, it's like it, this is like a seven, this is like a six thousand seventh graders. Right? What what porn <laughs> porn thing have I seen one time that I would yeah. like to try? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just honestly, these you're you're right that they're they're juvenile and they're also for that reason. Like I I have much more trouble getting through saying them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, this is the magazine that brought us the donuts and sex thing, right? So, yeah, they've got some weird thoughts over there. Oh boy. Sorry, people who write for Cosmo. I'm sure you have an English degree, and I very much feel for you. And honestly, they're probably having tons of fun. Just like <laughs> they probably are, actually. <laughs> How simultaneously gross, boring, and dumb are people? Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, that's a good point. They're like, oh, lol. Look with yeah, guy number yeah, four hundred. Yeah. 483 said <laughs> i oh guy number 483 luckily unfortunately you all can't see this but i get to see the some of the fun tasks that go on at cosmo in their photo selections rep- <laughs> representing these these absolute babes um here's i got two more questions for you okay. just real real quick ones it sounds like uh, a lot speak- more fun to live in gentlemen prefer blondes than in the mind of a man in the survey. <laughs> yeah, in this survey, absolutely. But but yeah, no, I, I should I should agree. I uh I, I do think it would be extremely fun to write for Cosmo. It, this is this is a dunking on the the readership and respondents, not not the the poor people who have to have to chart this. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh brother. Okay, so approximately imagine someone asks you this question. They come out of a spaceship, they've never seen a human, and they ask you, approximately how long do you like an entire sex session to last? How many respondents said, how many How many respondents took the, the what I like to call the sting option, 60 or more minutes? <gasps> <laughs> I thought we were going to go with the Marilyn Monroe 45 minutes to yeah. an hour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 60 or 60 more. 60 or more. 12, or more 12%. Yeah, oh man, this is hard because I don't know if the motivation to drastically overstate your uh your your prowess or your like you know anything like long wait longer than 5 minutes that's dumb. I don't know what's going to be more overriding in the in these in these respondents minds. Um I, let's ballpark it at 30. I think my logic is that there's some option that's like 45 to 60 and that guys are actually going to like oversell their prowess slightly to land right. in something beyond the the what they think is the norm whatever like, norm, like they're whoever. they're co- they're cognizant of the like uh, you know men just wanted it over as quickly as possible thing you, the, the, yeah they just, gratification as fast as possible thing right. but they also so we're all looking for a nut Exactly. <laughs> that, that they want they want to not fall into that stereotype, but they also don't want to go too high. I see. That's smart. That's smart. But I, I, I mean, think that's my logic of the genre that yeah. is the men in this study yeah. that they understand that nobody wants to be sore. 
Right. 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 Least of all themselves. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. Oh, you'll say 30. Okay. So you're 30, Meg, you're 12. So finish this sentence. When we're done with sex, I would love if she rolled over and left me alone. What percentage answered rolled over and left me alone? I feel like a morning zoo crew host right now. Like I've never felt my entire life. Can we have just a cheater moment and tell us what the other options are with this one? Oh, yeah, yeah. We could have been cheating the whole time. Uh, Cuddled up with me in bed, pulled me into the shower with her, and begged for round two. Again, seventh graders. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, I think, I think that uh, while the number that for you know, uh, like you know, rolled over and left me alone would probably be um, kind of like tragically high. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of people are going to lie about wanting to cuddle. That's what I'm saying. I also think that even the Cosmo survey respondent is going to get that that is not that doesn't tell us good things characterologically about you. So I'm going to say it's going to be real low, like two or three percent. Oh, I'm going to go slightly higher. I'm going to go more like uh, 8%. Okay. But still single digits, though. Oh, single digits would be my bet, given that a lot of people are going to lie and amp way up into cuddle territory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So uh, congratulations to both of you for making it through this this gauntlet that you've just run to find out which gentlemen prefer. So, Megan, it turns out that you are a what what horny guys want genius. Um, really? Beca- because you have gotten so you uh, you emerged victorious in every category, <laughs> inclu- including the final category because everybody went over. Really? So I'll give you the so I'll give you the percentages. But yeah, no, Megan, uh you you swept the you swept the swept the board here. Oh hell um, yeah. I did good at a cosmo quiz. <laughs> I, I am not this this just shows uh, good things about me that I have never responded to a Cosmo survey as, as a guy. I mean, I can't even imagine what the context would be <laughs> that you know. would, right? Like, do you know somebody on Facebook who's like, guess what? I took a quiz, you know? For real, yeah. I want to tell a magazine that I like it when someone grabs my crotch. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was 34.9%. Wow. Likes okay. a crotch grab? Likes a crotch grab. Over the top move you'd like to try. Uh, Getting it on in a public place. Um, so I I fudged the price is right rules, actually. Because, Meg, I think you said 41% and Tristan, you said 52%. Mm-hmm. And the a- actual answer is 31.7%. Oh, so we both went over. So you both went over. But so that one, I mean, fucking hell. I, well, I don't do, Who makes the rules of these damn things? Yeah. Oh, it's me. So we've got so the two takeaways are I still can't fucking do math and um, <laughs> uh, Megan's great cosmic quizzes. These are still the things we know. Okay, so the fin- uh, done with sex, blah blah blah, rolled over and left me alone. Five point three percent, a mere five point three. So that was the one where I I knew you had both gone over because I remembered how numbers worked at that time, <laughs> and then okay. okay later I seem to have 
lost it. And how long, how how long, how long must we sing this song? Um, how long would you like an entire sex session to last? How many said 60 or more minutes? 21.1%. Whoa. I was closer, but I did go over. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So. Well, congratulations. And uh, we both win. We're all winners here. (laughs) Laura Liley, though, probably the biggest. Absolutely. She would have really, I mean, she would have had it down to exact. You'd be quibbling over tenths of a point. She would have grabbed this quid right by the balls and just (laughs) taken it. Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. This has been Better Than Dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywell. You can find me on Twitter at Tusslersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Ed Pod. And email us at betteredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you want to tell us how to bilk a rich guy out of a diamond tiara. We are dying to know. So we can do it. I want to know, too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kidding. Our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review and subscribe. Get these stickers and buttons out of my house. Uh, <laughs> next week, oh, we have the screw tape letters. We're so excited with our two-part holiday special after that. So thanks, comrades. Maybe quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but it won't pay the rental on your humble flat or help you at the automat. Men grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. But square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their.